Heavenly Father, we pray that we would indeed see your righteousness and your saving power, your truth and your mercy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We all know how fairy tales are meant to end. From no age we've heard the stories of Cinderella and Snow White and Sleeping Beauty. And they all end the same way. With that fairy tale ending. You know how it goes. And they all lived happily ever after. We know how fairy tales end and we are brought up to have the same kinds of expectation for our own real life stories. But I don't have to tell you that real life stories don't always end in the fairy tale way. Too often we see in others or we experience in our own lives that actually things don't always work out the way that we expect them to. And people don't always have happy ever after. I wonder if you were surprised tonight when you heard the closing chapter of Nehemiah's story. Because no matter what way you look at it, this is far from a happy ever after. Just in case you need to be brought up to speed with where we are, we'll do a little quick recap at first of all. Nehemiah had been a cupbearer to the king of the Persian Empire in Susa. He had been born in exile. He had been born far away from Jerusalem. God's people had been taken away in exile. And while he was away, he had heard of the state of the city of Jerusalem. Its walls were broken down, its gates had been burned with fire, and the people of the city were in great trouble and disgrace. And so Nehemiah wept and prayed and then answered God's call to go and build up the city and to build up the people so that in time God's promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus, would come from that nation. And this book has told Nehemiah's story. Oftentimes it looked like a journal where he records what happened and then also his personal thoughts and reflections based on what has happened. And through the first 12 chapters, we've seen how God was gracious to him, how God helped him and the people to complete the work. They built the wall in 52 days despite opposition and taunts and threats and then building up the people of God through hearing understanding and obeying God's word a day of repentance brought about a new agreement a new commitment a, a dedication to follow God's law and last week we saw how they celebrated the dedication of the wall with joy and rejoicing because God had been faithful to all that Nehemiah had been doing. That would have been the moment to end the movie, to roll the credits, to rejoice in all that God had done. 
And the caption on the screen could have read, and they lived happily ever after. Except that's not quite how everything turned out. From the highs of chapter 12, we plunge unexpectedly into the depths of chapter 13. It would be good to have it open in front of you, page 499, if you've closed your Bible. Because now in chapter 13, everything seems to have gone wrong. All Nehemiah's hard work seems to have been for nothing. And as Nehemiah records what happened, and with it records a series of prayers in the light of those events, each time asking God to remember me. We get the the time scale in verse 6. Nehemiah had arrived in Jerusalem in in chapter 1 in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Uh, And he says there in verse 6 that in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, he had gone back uh, to the king. Sometime later, we're, we're not told how long, he was away. But sometime later, he comes back to Jerusalem. And it's on his return that he discovers how things have been going in his absence. And to his horror, he discovers that their determination to follow God's law has slipped away. And they're repeating the the disobedience of previous generations of the people of God. So what went wrong? And how will uh, Nehemiah sort it all out? And what will happen in the end? Well, that's what we see in this chapter. And the first instance is there in verses 1 to 3, where they were actually overly zealous in obeying and applying God's law. You see, most of the time, whenever we think of, of falling away from God or of disobeying God, we think of you know, letting things go, of not being so strict, uh, of licentiousness, just whatever goes, doesn't matter. Forget about what God has said. But obedience to God is like walking on a tightrope. Now, I would be useless in the circus. Absolutely useless. But if you imagine this is a tightrope, on one side there's licentiousness and, 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 you know, just do whatever you like, doesn't matter, on this side. And that's a danger. But the danger on this side is legalism. Of going too strict. Of trying to be more strict than God. So when the people hear, in verses 1 to 3, at the book of Moses being read, and they hear, it says there, at verse 1, that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, then the people are overly zealous in their response to the law. In verse 3, we we see what they did. Uh, They excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. But that was an overreaction. Because that wasn't what God had said in in his law. In verse 2, we see why the Ammonites and Moabites were to be excluded. 
It says, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. So we're back in the days when God had rescued his people from Egypt. And the Ammonites and the Moabites were afraid of the Israelites because they had heard what God had done for them in Egypt. How he had you know, sent the ten plagues upon Egypt and how he had brought them through the Red Sea. And the Ammonites and the Moabites are terrified. And so they refuse to help them in the wilderness. They try to call down curses upon them. But God, in brackets there it says, our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. So as you look at verses 1 to 3, Listen to what Deuteronomy 23 verse 3 says. Compare and contrast. Deuteronomy says, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord even down to the tenth generation. So how did they get it wrong? What did they do wrong? Well, by this stage, by Nehemiah, it's a thousand years later. The Ammonites and Moabites were long past the 10th generation. So any Ammonite or Moabite who wanted to come and worship the true God should have been welcomed. After all, Ruth was a Moabite. And she came to worship the God of Israel and even ended up in the Messiah's family line. But also... The short-term restriction of ten generations had only been for those two nations. Not, as verse 3 says, all who were of foreign descent. Do you see how they got it wrong? They they read something, they, they think God is saying one thing, and then they completely overreact. And they think they're doing what God wants. But let's move on to see the opposite danger. Of letting things slip we see that from verse 4 with the neglect of God's house within the temple buildings and the the courts of the house of God there were a number of storerooms with a priest in charge of them now this priest Eliashib as we see later he's the high priest He was closely associated with a name that should be familiar to us. We find it there in verse 4. He was closely associated with Tobiah. And if you've been with us through the series, Tobiah was one of the main opponents of Nehemiah. He was one of the ones who mocked them. In fact, he was the one who said, if even a fox climbs up on that wall that they're building, he'll knock it down. And yet Eliashib allows Tobiah to move into the large room in the temple buildings. It would be like coming into church some Sunday morning and finding that the vestry has been sublet. And you know, someone has moved out all the, all the chalices and all the registers and the, and the wine and, and everything and moved all their belongings in there. That's what's going on here. Because with Tobiah moved in, there was no room for the things that should have been stored in the storeroom. The grain offerings, the incense, the temple articles, the tithes. And so things had slipped. 
Verse 7 describes it as an evil thing. And so it's no wonder that Nehemiah threw all of Tobias' stuff out of the room when he discovers. So imagine Tobiah coming home, finding everything he owns out in the street. The lock's changed. And no room to move his stuff back in because Nehemiah has purified the rooms and moved all the equipment and offerings back in. So why was this such an evil thing? Well, Tobiah was doing his friend a favour, but he was damaging the worship of the temple. We see that because of the knock-on effect of Tobiah's occupation of the room. With nowhere to store the offerings, the Levites and singers hadn't been paid in the food that they were to eat. And so they'd gone back home to work their own fields, to make sure they had something to eat. So you turn up to temple worship, you wait for the choir to start singing, and they're not, they're not here. You wait for the Levites to do what the Levites do, and they're not around either. The house of God is suffering, the worship of God is suffering because of this evil thing. Remember back in the big agreement that everyone had agreed to in chapter 10? The last line, at summary of the whole thing was, we will not neglect the house of our God. And yet that's exactly what's happened. Nehemiah asks there in verse 11, why is the house of God neglected? Nehemiah's remedy is to reestablish the tithes from all Judah, and to appoint different men to take charge of the stories. Men, verse 13, who were considered trustworthy. And after that, we get the first of Nehemiah's prayers, his reflections. He says, remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. He's asking God to remember him. But there almost seems to be a, a bit of self-pity there as well. He has been faithful, even if everyone else hasn't been. Remember me, because this is what I've done. In the next section, the problem is the desecrating of the Sabbath. And again, this had been part of the big agreement in chapter 10 that they wouldn't buy from neighboring peoples on the Sabbath day. But again, they're slipping from God's standards. Men from Judah are treading wine presses. They're bringing in grain and wine and grapes and figs and all other kinds of loads. In other words, they're working on the day of rest. And others are getting in on the act as well, at the men of Tyre bringing in fish to sell on the Sabbath. So Nehemiah confronts the nobles of Judah, the leaders of the people, and he rebukes them, verse 17. What is this wicked thing you're doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same things 
so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city. Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. History was repeating itself. The remedy was that Nehemiah ordered the gates to be shut and not opened during the Sabbath. A few times some merchants came. They spent the whole night outside Jerusalem just waiting for the gates to open to get in and to sell their wares. But Nehemiah chased them. He said, what are you doing spending the night there by the wall? And then in verse 22, we get the second of Nehemiah's prayers. Remember me for this also, O my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. He's still appealing for God to remember him based on what he has done. But now he's asking for mercy according to God's great love. In the last section, we see the problem of intermarrying with the surrounding nations. It's not so much that the other nations are wrong in and of themselves. It's more that they don't worship Israel's God. It's the equivalent of not being unequally yoked with unbelievers that we find in the New Testament. But Nehemiah discovers the problem for himself with these marriages. He says there in verse 24, half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. In other words, they don't know and they can't understand God's word and they can't worship Israel's God. Nehemiah is frustrated by this terrible wickedness. And so he takes out his frustrations on some of the men. I don't think this is an example to follow. uh, Rebuking, uh, cursing, beating and pulling out their hair. I don't recommend that. That's not sanctioned by St. Matthew's Church. Why? Why does he do it? Because he sees history repeating itself all over again. He points to Solomon, the great King Solomon, who was led into sin by his foreign wives. And he sees it happening all over again. And as if that wasn't bad enough, it turns out that there in, uh, where are we, verse 28, that the grandson of the high priest was married to a foreigner. And no ordinary foreigner at that, but the daughter of Sanballat the Hornite. Sanballat had been the one who had mocked the work in chapter 2, who had plotted against the work in chapter 4, had tried to frustrate the work in chapter 6. And back in uh, chapter 2, verse 20, Nehemiah had said to him, As for you, you have no share in Jerusalem. And here he is, the in-law of the high priest's family. So now we get another of Nehemiah's prayers. 
The same word, but a different sentiment. He says, remember them, O my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Remember them, not in blessing this time, but in judgment. That's the tone of that prayer. And it comes out of a passion for God's glory and God's holiness. The remedy comes in verse 30. Nehemiah purifying the priests and the Levites of everything foreign, assigning them duties and making provision for the worship of God in the temple through firewood and first fruits. But by the end... I don't know how you feel tonight. But Nehemiah appears to be demoralized, discouraged, disappointed. His efforts for reformation and revival have been frustrated time and time and time again. So what are we to make of his story? We see in Nehemiah that just trying really hard to keep God's law doesn't work. None of us can do it. Remember the tightrope. We'll we'll fall into either legalism or license. We simply cannot obey God's law. Further, we see that sometimes... Even our best efforts for God don't really seem to make much of a difference. At least not in our lifetime. Yet here we are, two and a half thousand years later, reading the story of Nehemiah, warts and all. Something that Nehemiah could probably never have imagined possible. He'd certainly never heard of Rich Hill. But we also see that while we may not have the fairy tale ending in this life, God has prepared something so much better for his people in the end. Notice how the book finishes with another prayer of Nehemiah, a final prayer, a short prayer. It's different to the other prayers that we've seen, isn't it? Gone are his merits. Remember me because I've done this for you. Gone are all the brownie points that he thinks he has earned with God. He simply says, remember me with favour. Oh my God. It's a simple prayer for grace. Undeserved favour. It's a prayer not unlike the other prayer we heard in our second reading. It too came from a man who was at the end of himself. And yet a man who was the complete opposite of Nehemiah. You see, Nehemiah had struggled to obey God's word. Had tried to live for God his whole life. The other man was hanging on a cross. His crimes 
having caught up with him. And yet he prays, prays a similar prayer to that of Nehemiah. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He doesn't give any reason why Jesus should remember him. No list of merits or achievements or accomplishments. But none are much help, actually. We simply need to come, as, as the hymn puts it, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. And Jesus, the innocent one, the, the, the man who has done nothing wrong, the one dying on the cross for lawbreakers and sinners, he gives this other dying man a great promise, the assurance of salvation. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me. Where? In paradise. Jesus answers prayers like that. And Jesus answers prayers like Nehemiah's last one because Jesus is the saviour of religious types and sinner types and all types of people. And what is promised? Much better than a fairy tale ending. We are promised paradise itself. Nehemiah teaches us that no matter how things go in this life, no matter how our lives come to an end, whether they're like a fairy tale or not, we have this promise of paradise to look forward to and to enjoy forever. Remember me with favour, O my God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of Nehemiah. We thank you for all that you've taught us over this term and a half as we followed his story. Father, we pray that tonight we would indeed come to you and pray that simple prayer. Remember me with favour, O oh my God. Amen.